Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, produced by the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia. This is Jordan Rich. This podcast celebrates the unique strengths and creativity so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. We have an awesome guest on the podcast today. Her name is Jessica Minahan, a licensed and board-certified behavior analyst, author, special educator, and consultant to schools internationally. She's written a book that we'll talk about called The Behavior Code, a practical guide to understanding and teaching the most challenging students with Nancy Rappaport. And right off the bat, I think we've gotten your attention. So let's get right into it with Jessica and learn more about how to crack the behavior code and help our kids. Delightful to meet you, Jessica, and thanks for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about your book, which, uh, what, 2012? Was that the pub date? That was my first book, yes, 2012, The Behavior Code. Okay, and and that's the one that I've been pouring over, and the subtitle is A Practical Guide to Understanding and Teaching the Most Challenging Students. As we speak, the pandemic is still ongoing, and it's been a, a, a real panic in terms of schooling, keeping kids in, keeping kids out, and the impact on students. Is now the time more than ever for The Behavior Code? It is a hard time for everybody, and I think that what the behavior code can offer and you know what we'll be talking about today is how to understand behavior in a way that gives leads us to action steps um the you know it's hard to assume why someone's behaving in a certain way and it's nice to have some guidelines on how to go about understanding what the why behind behavior because there always is a why and um and and once you understand the why it's easier to intervene in an effective way the reviews for your work are pretty stellar and a, a lot of folks in the industry in the in the world of education are saying this is truly a godsend what's the secret Secret sauce here. Uh, did you study in a different realm? I mean, did you uh, work with individuals who influenced you to study more? Tell us a little bit about that. I am a behavior analyst, and I specialize in kids with mental health issues, which is not always usual, uh, typical for someone who's a mm. behavior analyst. And when mental health is fueling the behavior like anxiety, depression, um, trauma. Um, sort of, you know, kids who are sort of wired in an uh, inflexible way and prone to oppositional behavior. It The behavior can be very confusing and traditional ways of handling behavior can actually not only be unhelpful, but can even exacerbate the situation. So I, in my career, and I'm a doctoral student now, about a year mm -hmm. away from finishing my doctorate. Oh. And, uh, you know, I am doing have just been doing a lot of research through my career on neurobiology and the biological basis of behavior, mental health, you know. So what I do in the behavior code and in my work is I combine what's best practice for, you know, uh, you know, analyzing behavior and with a deep knowledge of what's effective and research-based for kids with mental health. And that combination uh, wasn't really commonplace at the you know mm -hmm. when i first published right. the book and and since a lot of times we go into one lane or the other but when you combine the understanding of um anxiety for example um with what's going on in the behavior it can really lead to mm. nice solutions for kids. So you see the need to cross further into the lane to understand that behind a lot of this behavior, and you know, we don't accept the behavior itself, but behind it, there are uh, mental issues. There are mental health issues. 
Yeah. And mental health sounds scary, but anxiety right now, for example, which is um, one of the more common underlying factors of behavior, you know, a kid who's tantruming is not a regulated person. That's a dysregulated person. And one of the most common um, factors of, you know, contributing to dysregulation is anxiety. Currently, we don't have rates of anxiety in kids since March, um, since the pandemic, but prior to March for <clears throat> the national rates in the U.S. is 31.9% for lifetime prevalence. Mm. So that's one in three kiddos have clinically significant anxiety before age 18 in the U.S. Um, mm. And it can manifest into all kinds of behaviors, not uh, necessarily intuitive to, oh, that poor child's stressed, right? So irritability and clinginess, whininess in little kids, um, excessive worrying we would recognize, but we wouldn't recognize um, acting out behavior as, as a, a manifestation right. of, of anxiety. And so when you would take sort of like incentives as a common behavior management technique, a lot of parents use it, a lot of schools mm. use it, sticker charts and you know, contracts, like if you get your homework, homework done all week, you get a pizza party, whatever, and those kind of things can really fall flat for mm. kids um, who have these underlying issues, because incentives do not teach skills, all an incentive will do is increase your motivation. So if you said to me, Jess, can you speak in French for the rest of this webinar, this mm. podcast, you know, I'll give you X amount of money. I would be motivated by the money, but I can't speak French. So it wouldn't change my behavior. Right. So when kids are not behaving, what we've learned from, um, you know, Ross Green, Stuart Avalon, lots of Harvard researchers, is that it's due to an underdeveloped social skill or an underdeveloped emotional skill. And when you analyze what those skills are and then directly teach those skills, for example, um, for anxiety, it's five, five skills, typically self-regulation, executive functioning, social skills, your ability to understand someone else's thoughts and feelings. Often kids with anxiety distort that a little bit. I don't know if you've ever gotten out of your car and spilled coffee all over your shirt and oh, walked in, into a, <laughs> into a building. Hope I'm not jinxing anyone. And you walk into a building. <laughs> if you're walking down the hallway with a big coffee stain, Anyone glancing in your direction, you would overprescribe their thinking something mm. negative and overprescribe sure. their, you know, noticing it. And that kind of like everyone's behavior is about me and it's negative is that distortion when we're a little self-conscious and that's what happens when you're anxious. Mm. So that can contribute that misperception, um, flexible thinking, accurate thinking. When we're anxious, we tend to think on the downside. So it's really only these five skills. When you think about it, it sounds easier um, when anxiety goes up, those particular five skills go down. Mm -hmm. And then when kids calm down, they come up a little bit. And if we don't address the skills underlying the behavior, um, incentives and so forth, wouldn't teach those skills and, and right. probably aren't getting us the results we are looking for. Let's examine how this impacts kids with learning differences. And this is what this podcast focuses on, the, the, the great skill sets that people with learning differences have in other areas, but also the great pressures and stigma that is faced that, that they face on a regular basis. The fact that someone has dyslexia or any learning difference, that's just another pack of rocks on the back, I guess, to deal with. Do the same techniques, are they employed for kids like that? Definitely. There's, when I analyze any child's behavior, I look at what are the underdeveloped skills. So if a 
you know, I'm called in a lot for, you know, I don't get normal emails. I always joke because I'm a behavior analyst. I specialize in kids with behaviors that aren't easy to solve. And so when I get emails, they're always all in caps, a lot of exclamation points. When I would walk into one of my buildings when I was in in districts, even though I was friendly with most people, no one ever said, hi, or how are you? They would just say, what do I do when he yells? What do, <laughs> what do I do when he's under the table? Desperate. Like, what, what do I do when she's crying? Right? right. And I just would change that question to what skills is he missing that he's hiding under the table? Other kids his age don't act like that. What coping skills mm. did she not have that she, you know, she couldn't handle that situation. Other kids can. So to me, I just get really curious when a kid's misbehaving. And so kids with learning challenges, um, I was a special ed teacher for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. And um, kids with learning challenges are are a little more prone to anxiety than other kids, right? So for example, um, <clears throat> but uh, so for example, um, when anxiety is really good at generalizing. So not only in a situation where you have to read, if you have dyslexia, would you be a little anxious? Unfortunately, that chronic pattern of stress can kids put kids with learning challenges a little more at risk for developing, you know, anxiety, general anxiety, because, um, you know, there's that chronic stressor and that pack of rocks, like you're mentioning. So um, I think, in general, an anxiety trauma-informed lens on all kids' behavior is really useful because anxiety, you know, when a kid's acting out or shutting down, disengagement of work is a huge issue this year that we've gone virtual and small classrooms. Um, And so disengagement largely is due to a kid who's having negative thoughts while look, you know, looks at an assignment, has negative thoughts, gets overwhelmed, shuts down. And so the anxiety techniques would be really useful in general. So kids with learning challenges are a little more prone to being anxious. Of course, school isn't as easy for them. Um, and so, uh, and even if there is an anxiety, looking at what are the underdeveloped skills, social emotional skills contributing to the behavior is a really helpful formula. For someone, Jessica, who's experienced a bit of anxiety in my adult years and tried to rationalize my way around it uh, with all of my uh, logic and experience in life, I always think about how a child uh, under 10 or a child in his teens or even early 20s deals with something that is so uncomfortable, let's put it that way. And and I think people listening need to realize, and, and maybe you'll agree, when you're dealing with any kind of uh, mental illness or mental difference, you're going to be dealing with people who are challenged because this is so darn difficult to work around yourself and you can't do it by yourself. Maybe somebody in history has, but I've yet to find them. The way we perceive mental issues certainly needs to be changed. Yes. I think talking rationally to a child or a teen who's upset, we've all tried that. And like you're saying, uh, that doesn't go too well because um, telling someone, for example, telling someone to calm down, I always make that joke. Um, you know, first of all, I don't know if anyone's ever told you to calm down. It, it, it then oh, you get more agitated. Of course, of course. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. But also, you can't say calm down to a kid who does not know how to calm down, right? So a lot of times in in schools, there's like we say to teenagers, go for a walk and calm down or um, go sit in the calming corner. You know, there's a little chair in the corner for elementary school and the kids walking around and sitting back there very upset still. I mean, you, we forget to teach the skill. And so I think when you have a, a skill, 
uh, building approach to any type of behavior, it's super useful. So when so that would really give us different instincts mm. than trying to rationally speak to someone um, when you understand that they they're lacking. So, for example, flexible thinking. Right. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with a 16 year old girl who's like repeating herself over and over. And she's not really listening to anything you say, um, or like a five-year-old, so you say, put on your winter coat. And the kid says, no, parents couldn't be there for an hour on a standoff. And that's because those kids are totally stuck. And that was very common when you get escalated and anxious as you get stuck. Talking to them nicely about why you need to wear your coat is not going to do anything. In fact, it might fuel the agitation. So what I try to teach people to do is, is look for these five skills, flexible thinking being one, and realize they're, they're stuck, calm them down. Um, in a, in a way I can give you some examples for, and then, um, the flexibility will come back up, then talk to them. Mm. So you want to see it as a neurobiological sign. They are anxious. And so it's a cue to us to stop talking and the rational talking is not going to be useful. Calm them down, get the anxiety down, rational kid back online, and then try to talk to them. That will be better. Your behavior code book and your process is all about cracking that code. How do we get to connect with some of these kids? And part of what you're describing is in the book called The Fair Plan, F-A-I-R. Just give me the, the broad overview of the FAIR plan, just so people can get a full understanding if they can. Yeah, that acronym is just um, an easy recipe to follow in order to figure out the why behind behavior. So F stands for function, which means um, <clears throat> that children's behavior would not persist unless they were getting something out of it. So the most common functions are attention or escape, right? Um, dis work disengagement was just so prevalent right now, largely to avoid, right? So we want to look at, you know, why that is and, and the function. A, a is for accommodations. And that is, um, like I was mentioning those five skills to you, how do we teach those skills and um, what accommodations do we put in place for a kid? For example, I wouldn't say start your work to a kid who has trouble initiating because they're flooded with ne you know, negative, overwhelmed thoughts saying start won't work. We want to change the accommodation, how we're approaching that and also teach kids you know, how to initiate something that's really overwhelming or how to stop overwhelming thoughts. So we want to teach them skills plus accommodate in that section. Interaction strategies is something um, is, is, is the I part of FAIR. And, and that's a section that um, I have, uh, you know, tried to get people to consider our accommodations. So for example, you've seen kiddos who do so great in third grade because that teacher is so child whispery, but then in fourth grade, they have a really hard time because the teacher might have more of a you know, an inflexible personality and the kid and the teacher clash or a high school kid never gets kicked out of class, but is getting kicked out of science class. So it's the same kid what's going on. And so a lot of times certain kids, their success is person dependent. And uh, we want to uncover that. Um, there are really specific things people are doing to uh, those child whispery people are doing that we can write out. Um, I actually, every section of a behavior plan I write has interaction strategies. And if a kid doesn't, you know, have such extreme behavior that they need a behavior plan, I can put interaction strategies and password protected, send it to the group of teachers working with a kid 
Um, so for example, for a kid who's a little inflexible, you don't want to say, pick that up publicly in front of, you know, if they drop something in front of the whole class, that's like the most anxiety provoking way to give a direction, most likely to get you an argument. Um, there's an art to giving directions to a kid who's inflexible. For example, you private um, direction, not public. So you could write on a sticky note, please pick that up and put it on their desk and walk away. Um, that's much more likely to work because you didn't, you didn't spike the anxiety and, and lose. And then therefore when anxiety goes up, the flexibility would go down. So, um, or giving the reason before the direction, that's a really good tip. Like, um, usually we say, pick that up. And then we say the reason I don't want to fall. And the kid, once you say, pick that up is already in an agitated state. You're mm -hmm. picking on them. Mm -hmm. They interpret, you know, we talked about that. So social misinterpretation that all those things can happen. Um, if you say the reason first, oh, I hope I don't fall on this because I have such a bad knee. Could you pick this up? When you mm -hmm. say the direction yeah. second, it will just the be, you know, a, you're a reasonable human, not just a demanding. But for no before reason. you get to the letter R, just a quick aside, I, I think any of these exercises and any of these practical uh, directions can work for adult relationships too. Oh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's, it, yeah, I agree. The way what I've learned from working with kids who are inflexible is a it's just and that's what I'm saying. Anxiety informed yep. Uh, yep. approaches are just very universally helpful. What about the R? Um, the R is responses. So how do I respond when a kid, um, you know, is totally disengaged, head down, won't won't you know respond or saying, um, you know, an with anxiety, really common, the two most common types of inaccurate thinking when you talked about negative thinking is very common with kids with anxiety. If you're stuck in traffic to something really important um, and you're late, you don't think comforting thoughts, right? You're thinking, you know, you're not thinking, oh, the sky's a perfect blue today. Look at that. You're thinking, you know, anxiety provoking thoughts, which makes you more anxious. And unfortunately, when we're anxious, we think negatively. And so, um, you know, when a kid's head's down, you know, we want to make sure the responses are skill building. You, you want, if you have analyzed that they were overwhelmed by a thought, that's why the head goes down and they're disengaging in this particular activity. Your response, want, you know, you want to be responding to help get the, those, think, those thoughts more accurate, more doable, less overwhelmed. Mm. Um, so the response needs to be tied with the analysis of the underdeveloped skills as well. This is terrific uh, material. And here's a, a really important question. And I know that this works for teachers who have employed the behavior code principles, but how is this done in a classroom of 30 uh, when you've got two or three or one acting up and you've got to keep your attention on a lot of other kids as well? And I guess you could say the same for parents with multiples. <laughs> what do we mm -hmm. do in that case? How does it work? Yeah, they, it can definitely be applied to, well, most of my career is in, in public schools and big districts. And so um, I'm training classroom teachers with very little background in mental health and uh, very little background in behavior management, actually, too, unfortunately, um, required for a teacher. So, um, yes. So, for example, there are a couple commonplace um you know, responses or interventions that we use in schools and parents and, and at homes um, that are, are not useful 
as much as we think. So for example, breaks, right? That's the number one strategy I hear schools telling me and parents telling me, oh, when he's frustrated with homework, I give him a break. And, and with, you know, with elementary and high school, we say go for a walk or whatever. And the problem is that when you say, um, like I was mentioning, go sit back there, um, the kid is still ruminating and thinking about what they're upset about. And so when it's thought-based dysregulation, which, um, you know, dysregulation, like agitation, it's hard to know what's causing that. But when it's thought-based, you don't want them to walk around because you can be ruminating that whole time. And so the kid's going to come back to the homework still as agitated and, um, you know, inflexible as they left. Or, you know, if you have a kid go sit in the common corner, they're ruminating about what they're upset about. They, They don't come back calmer. So as the you know, general rule, I recommend, you know, when we can't sleep at night, we read a book or watch TV to help us go back to sleep. And that's because if we stay on the thought or thoughts, we'll stay awake. So um, we have to distract our thoughts and read a book in order to calm down neurobiologically enough to go back to sleep. So same idea in school, um, I recommend for for teachers, especially whole class, um, to consider cognitive distractions or a thought break. So instead of saying, go sit back there, um, you want to give kids, you know, like little kids, you could give where's Waldo book page or like a hidden picture thing, um, have them listen to a two minute read aloud book. You know, when you're reading to kids, they, they regulate really fast. You can teach them to do that. Like go listen to the book. And the way I describe it to kids is your brain is like a remote control. You're stuck on this channel. You have to change the channel to calm down. And so, um, you know, you can say to a kid, go back there, change the channel, come back on a different channel and hand them some sort of distracting activity. Older kids, you can do Mad Libs, sports trivia, Harry Potter trivia. We have to be careful with kids who have any type of depression because those thoughts can be very unhealthy. So we don't want them with their head down ruminating and, and those kind of thoughts. So, um, you know, giving them a Harry Potter trivia card, getting them, you mm-hmm. know, thinking about that, obviously often the face looks calmer and then you can try to re-engage in right. the activity. Well, I, I just want to interject that the examples really make it uh, user-friendly because we didn't want to just hear more theory on how it works. You really have put this stuff into practice. It makes a difference when parents and teachers who are smart people can hear how it actually works. Yeah. And there are really common, it, it's it, so people don't have to be overwhelmed. There are common things we do that are not as effective as we think. Um, and by making a little change into the break, that's not much more time for a teacher or a parent um, to do that kind of break versus um, a traditional kind of movement break. And But yet it'll be effective and it's neurobiologically informed, anxiety informed. Mm. Um, things like initiation, we often say, start your work. And um, I would call a duck a duck. If you say start and nothing happens, um, that kid is having trouble initiating. So for example, one big reason for that is the negative thinking. Um, And I point this out because it's one of the more complicated, um, it sounds really complicated to handle. But for example, if you're passing out papers to a class and you say, okay, start blah, blah, blah. And the hand goes up immediately. Can I go to the bathroom? I would go over to that kid and draw two two columns down a piece of paper before and after, and just say to them, how hard do you think this is going to be? One through five. 
So of course the kid's going to say five, this is going to be horrible. So just write it down. Don't judge it. Don't comment. Just say, okay, write down the five. Then when they're done. So in high school, college, you don't have edited it anymore. It's completed. Pull the sheet back out and say, how hard was it? So now that it's over or little kids wait a couple hours. So now that it's over, the anxiety comes down and the accurate thinking comes back up. And so often they will say, you know, four, three, a much lower number, do it about five times because you want enough data. And the reason I'm suggesting that is because the most common place response to a kid says, I can't do this, or, you know, all or nothing statements like kids who say, I hate math, not, I just don't like long division, right? That's all or nothing is the most, one of the more common um, anxiety related ways of thinking, inaccurate thinking. And so if the kid says, I, I hate writing, I can't do this you, I stink at writing. Often we say something reassuring or, or, or nurturing or, and those are lovely things to do. So please keep doing it, but it doesn't change anxious thinking patterns. So what the research suggests, what changes anxious thinking pattern? One technique is called disproving. So if you can show proof to the contrary of what the kid's thinking, they're much more likely to get rid of that thought. So if you can show them the paper where in the before column, it says five, it's going to be really difficult. And then after the numbers um, lower uh, consistently and just say, you know what, before you start writing, you think it's a five. And then it looks like after you're done, you realize it was, it was lower. And then don't give them the answer to this. Huh? That's interesting. <laughs> and you want them to come up with, oh, I'm freaking myself out. My first yeah. thought's not accurate. Yeah. And, and you know, how a lot of kids, when, when you ask them about homework or a project, they say they distort, they get this inaccurate sense of time. Oh my gosh, this is going to take me hours. Mm -hmm. Just write down in the before column, how long do you think it's going to take? And write down whatever they said, which is totally inaccurate. And then um, once after they stop stalling, time them. And usually for some reason, I only have to do that once. And then the next time you say to the kid, well, how long do you think it's going to take? And the kid goes, fine. And then just starts working, you know, because <laughs> you just disprove that completely. Yeah. And so that's a much more effective way. And it's a little counterintuitive. Um, I, I think you have to learn a little bit about neurobiology and negative thinking to, to know how to do that. But that's very quick. A parent and teacher can do that really easily. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these strategies, when you pair them with the, once you analyze what the skill is contributing to the behavior, um, are very classroom friendly, very parent right, friendly. Right. I actually didn't put anything in the book or any of my articles um, that wasn't um, field tested where teachers, even overwhelmed teachers, were able to implement really easily. Right, right. I, I love the fact that we're trying, through your methods, we're trying to teach children to not catastrophize, which so many adults do. And that uh, leads to anxiety, of course, and, and it's a, a much more happy way to live when you can learn right. those techniques. I have one more question that's sort of related, and it's the big elephant in the corner of the room, and that's the medication conundrum. As we speak, uh, millions of children are medicated for one reason or another, and some of them, I'm sure, are, are quite justified. But what's your take on the general path of medication for behavioral issues and whether or not what you're talking about is really the right step forward? Well, medication can be very helpful for many kids. Um, I actually co-authored my first book with the child psychiatrist. And, um, you know, and the reason is because um, she saw what I was doing 
created a situation where the medications were not needed. And we had several cases uh, overlapping and she could wean kids off and so forth. Because when you go in and look at um, what's been tried for a kid, um, you know, a lot of times these incentives and reward things, um, you know, if you incentivize a kid to write his paper, you're never addressing the overwhelmed thoughts that the kid's having. Whereas like in the disproving strategy I gave you, you would be chipping away at that actual problem and therefore the engagement in work would change. And um, I think people, you know, aren't doing that. So when I come in, I often see behavior plans, those incentive things like get all your work done. And when you realize he can't get all his work done because of these certain skills, it's a can't, it's not a won't. Um, and look for what the skills are and teach the skills there, you'll see a really huge change in behavior. Um, so I think you always want to ask yourself what's been tried before medication. And, um, you know, often the incentive kind of plans, uh, you know, aren't, aren't going to be that helpful for mm -hmm. most, you know, a lot of kids. Um, I think they can be sort of helpful for typical kids who have, uh, you know, all these skills, but um, most kids uh, don't if they're having behavior issues. And so um, I, I think that's too bad if we have to use medication because we didn't, we didn't, right. you know, intervene correctly. So I think, you know, um, but in, a, you know, medication has a, has a definite place for, for a lot of kids, but um, I, I would always ask what's been tried also, you know, or what's the plan to get them off? What, you know, if you don't have anything helpful in place and just incentives kind of things, um, then, then the medication is the big um, strategy. And right. that's not teaching skills. The kid's not going to be able to handle stressful situations later. Um, medication, you know, re reduces the response, the neurobiological response to anxiety or stress, but it doesn't help them learn how to overcome it. And um, so I would say, I would always question, you know, and make sure we're doing that as well, um, or instead of. Right. At this point, uh, before we wrap up, people are desperate for me to give your web address a toss. So it's Jessica Minahan with an A, M-I-N-A-H-A-N.com, where you can read about uh, all of the work and certainly the, the Behavior Code book is available everywhere uh, online and so forth. But uh, this is really very, very helpful and interesting and fascinating. The the neurobiology and understanding of how the brain works is really helping people like you do what you do. And I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to share with us. And by the way, congratulations on the very soon to be Dr. Jessica Minahan. <laughs> I hope so. It feels like it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's for sure. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really um, think this topic is very important and I appreciate you having me on. Jessica Minahan. Her website is her name, jessicaminahan, M-I-N-A-H-A-N.com. Do check that out, and certainly the book is fabulous. It's called The Behavior Code, a practical guide to understanding and teaching the most challenging students. And thanks for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. Please feel free to contact us at our new web address, dyslexicswanted.org. That's dyslexicswanted.org. We welcome guest or topic suggestions. We want to share your story. Dyslexics Wanted is a production of the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia.